we are now today going to begin uh, what is considered by many to be the second movement of Romans. So the book of Romans is divided up into four movements. And the movement, the first movement is chapter one through four, and that's all about how God, uh, how, how the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Of course, if you've been with us for a while, you know we spent the last three months talking about chapters one through four. And really, one through four will spring us into the second movement, and the second movement is very practical. It's all about how that same gospel gives us new life. It actually turns us into people here and now, like Kendra was saying during the transition, who can live renewed gospel-transformed lives in our cities and in our homes and in our communities today. So five through eight is how the gospel gives us new life. And that's also the movement in which Paul will introduce us to the Holy Spirit. So we're going to get into that a little bit today, but a lot further in chapter eight. Uh, and Romans, if you, if you study it, you kinda, you'll notice that one, really one through eight, even though they're different, uh, one through four springboards us into five, but one through eight really is one giant piece uh, that is really all important if you're going to fully get a grasp of this word justification, which we've been talking through for a very long time. Then nine through 11 is all about how Jesus fulfilled God's promise to Israel. Now that's, we're going to get to that in a few months. That's going to be a headful, so we're not going to talk about it much today, but that'll be fun. I'm actually really excited about that. And then chapters 12 through 16 is all about how the gospel is what will bring the church together. And I've been studying ahead on that, and I'm really, really pumped about that and the unity that we're hoping that that will bring. So uh, we're entering the second movement, and again, it's a very highly practical movement. Uh, it's, a, it's a highly practical flow of thought that teaches us quite a, with quite a bit of clarity uh, that the gospel really does turn us into people who truly can impact the world for the better. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm just going to dive right into it. I'm just going to read uh, just these first five verses of it today off the screen. We're going to begin in Romans 5, uh, verse 1, and we're going to go through 5. It begins by saying, therefore, a very big word, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through, whom, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's all exciting, right? But not only that, but we rejoice in suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what Paul does here is he begins this second movement by saying, since we have been justified. It's basically a summary of everything we learned in the first four chapters. Because we have been justified. Because of everything that he said about the gospel and about the glory of God and about the image of God and then of that list of sins that we all find ourselves on that prove that we all need for God to declare us righteous. Because God, in fact, did declare us righteous. Then he says that by faith, you got to notice that word, by faith, it's a very key word, justification is not automatic, it has to be initiated by faith, just like how for Abraham, the covenant was initiated by faith, we talked about that last week, 
So by faith we are justified. So what it's saying, this very first line, is embody everything that we learned from the last three months. And that is what Paul means when he says, therefore, because of all this, because of all this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this could not be more important. And if we spent the entire sermon on this one line, it would be worth our time. I don't think we're going to have to do that, but it'd be worth our time to do that. Church, it breaks my heart to see a person accept the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life, accept that message, but have it never really sink in. Have it never quite click in your life. If you think you need to get re-saved every single Sunday because of the way your week went, so you come into church and you're like, I gotta do it all over again, it has not clicked. If you think you need to start the entire process all over every time you fall, it has not clicked. But that is how a lot of us live our lives. Like every day is God, he's just willing to toss us out. Say, you're out of here, right? And then we have to beg him all over again to let us back in. That is the gospel that a lot of people have bought into and they believe and they've let their minds be convinced of. But Paul says this in Romans 3, 23 through 24. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he says that we've been justified as a gift of God. It is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. See, if you think that God gave you this gift and this is a thing that he just generously and abundantly just poured out himself to give to you, but he's just waiting on the edge of his seat for you to do something wrong so he can take that gift back, you do not understand the gift at all. And you will live your entire life as if it was never given to you in the first place. And I'm telling you, that's how a lot of people live. And the reason that this matters so greatly that this actually clicks, that justification clicks, that what Jesus did for you covers you, clicks, is because the eternity, the concept of eternity, is a source of anxiety for a lot of people. For many, many people, it robs them of their lives. It robs them of their experiences. It robs them of their friendships today. If you're always worried about what will happen later, You're never going to be who you're supposed to be today. Which means that people who you are supposed to reach will not be reached today. People who you're supposed to help will not be helped today. People you're supposed to feed will not be fed today. Places that are dark that you're supposed to bring the light of Jesus into will remain in darkness today. Because you're debilitated by your own lack of understanding of the gospel and what it does for you. So Paul begins this second movement by saying, since we've been justified, we have peace with God. We have peace. Paul is taking care of the main thing here. And you're going to see what he does here and why this is such an important foundation for him to lay. The word that Paul uses here for peace, in Greek it's the word irene. Uh, In Hebrew, it's shalom. Peace is shalom. Now, this is very, very important. Shalom means wholeness. It means you're complete. I was talking to a friend of mine a few weeks ago. He's a church planner, and he works with a church planning network, and they're planning churches all over the place. And uh, like most church planning networks, they are all about discipleship. Like, we're about discipleship. That's why we exist. We're here to make disciples. Disciples, disciples, disciples. 
says, if we're not making disciples, we're failing. That's the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world and make disciples. But then one day, in all of their meetings and their talks and their conferences and all these things that they hold about making disciples, somebody asked a question. They said, well, wait a minute. What's a disciple look like? Like, what does that even mean? Particularly, what does a disciple of Jesus look like? And nobody had an answer. Of course, you have answers. There are answers that you can get in the Bible. There are cookie-cutter answers that we're generically prone to say, like a follower of Christ, that's a disciple. Or, or Paul says it like this. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. All right, that's discipleship, right? Some would say. A person who does what I do, a person who I'm training, a person who's fully dedicated to Christ, who reads his Bible every day, who fasts and who prays. These are the kinds of generic answers you're going to get when you ask that question. And it sent my friend and his, in like a small group of them on a journey that lasted 18 months of them really studying and figuring out what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and what does it look like to make a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the conclusion that they drew, which I actually affirm as I hear it, I'm like, that makes a ton of sense. I just hadn't worded it this way. Is the conclusion they ultimately came to was wholeness. Now that may sound like a very strange way to define something as, dis- as important as discipleship, but it really illuminated something to me about why we're here in the first place. See, we're not here to turn a bunch of original, creative people into a bunch of cookie-cutter replicas of each other. That is not why we exist. It's more about looking at one another. You look at me, I look at you, we have a conversation, we say, who are you? Who am I? And what is it that you can do that I can't do? And what is it that's preventing you from being who you're supposed to be? And what's it in me that's preventing me from being the person I'm supposed to be and accomplish the things that God has me to accomplish? That's what, it's, it's about what's preventing us. That's the discipleship process. It's all about leading one another toward that place where we're whole, where we're who we're supposed to be. It's like, it's like this, Jesus, you saved me, great. But now what? Unfortunately for many people, it's like, Jesus, thank you so much. But my life is still a mess. My family's a wreck. I still don't know how to manage my money. I'm still in debt. I'm failing all my classes. I'm still angry all the time. I'm still worried about every little thing that happens. The question is, what does it look like for the gospel to actually take hold of every area of your life so that you can reflect back on your day and think, dude, my marriage is awesome. My family is awesome. I enjoy coming home to my kids. Jesus has been working in my home and it's an amazing place. He's been working in my school and I'm doing amazing. My relationships are being reconciled. I'm becoming a more forgiving person. I'm learning to apologize when I know that I've caused harm in an area, or I've been the source of hurt in an area, or even if I've hurt somebody and I don't even think I'm wrong, I'll still be the first to do that because I believe in reconciliation. I'm learning the value of people. All people. People who are not like me and people who are just like me. People who have committed crimes that I can't even imagine committing and beginning to see the world and its members kind of through that lens of this person is somebody who has the image of God and this 
person is somebody who Jesus actually believed was worth dying for. See the world through that lens. I'm learning that it's okay to be different. It's okay to disagree. But it's not okay to be hostile or harsh or mean. Because loving your neighbor actually means you love people who believe different things than you do, who look differently than you do, who act differently than you do. And that, that's kind of, as these things start to take place in your life, this is the path of becoming who you're supposed to be. A whole person understands all those things. That's shalom. And part of wholeness is having that assurance of knowing, I don't have to worry about what will happen to us someday, because I'm in Christ. We have fullness of life now that is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying justification, that concept that we spent all that time on, of when God looks at you and he declares, you are righteous. It happens so that, that's what, this is what this first word line is saying here in the second movement, you are justified so that you can become the people that God has designed you to be. And we're never going to be those people without it. But because of it, wholeness is actually a reality. But watch this. I'm going to give you some, uh, some Hebrew and Greek words today that are going to really frame this for you. I know it might seem like a lot, but it's pretty sweet. So the word anxious, right? I consider anxiety and anxiousness to basically be the opposite of peace. And the, it's a kind of the anti-peace. The word anxious is the word Merriam now. And Merriam now literally just means to be in pieces, it means the world is supposed to be one thing, but somebody broke it. Somebody shattered it. Somebody took the window and broke it into a million pieces, and not, how do you put it back now? Typically, we're anxious because we believe that we should be in control, but we realize that ultimately so much of it is out of our hands. So much of life is out of our hands. So in our minds, things are supposed to be one way, and instead they're another way. You know, in the entire Sermon on the Mount, in Jesus' message in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the longest of all of his treatments, he gives it to anxiety. He spends the most time saying, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry, do not be anxious, because being anxious robs you of who you're supposed to be today. So the Greek word for anxious is to be in pieces, but the Greek word for, or, but Hebrew, shalom, is the word wholeness. So you have in pieces, or you have put together. And what Paul is trying to say here is basically this. Most people live their entire lives in pieces. Anxious because they can't control things they want to control in this life, and they're even more uncertain about the next life. But that reminder of justification that confidence to know that God has declared you and I to be righteous and that when those scales of our lives are finally weighed, we won't be standing on them alone, but Jesus will be standing next to us and that our lives will be judged by his life, right? That should cause peace because that's the reality. And if you understand that reality, you will have peace today. And we can live confidently knowing that the God of all grace will do exactly what he always does and what he says he'll do. Because people who have peace are far more effective for the kingdom than people who are in pieces. Wholeness is possible. 
It can happen. You can be a person who wakes up every day and you're happy to be alive. You can be a person who wakes up every day and even when you know it's going to be challenging, you remind yourself, I have an incredible purpose. And if I don't do it, who's going to do it? Every day is training ground. Every day is another step in that process. And we can let our challenges debilitate us and knock us down or we can let them springboard us into who we were created to be. So then, after verse 1, so that's all verse 1, Paul says this in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The word access here, another translation could be an introduction. Uh, it's, it's a Greek word that literally means to approach or to bring to. But the thing that I love about this word that's so fascinating about this word is it's actually a, a word that's used to describe a harbor that a ship comes into. So after a long journey, a lot of work, a long haul, this was a docking point. This was an anchor point. This was a place where you put the anchor down and you have the assurance of knowing we have arrived safely at this place. So after, this is very significant, so after we get all that stuff about peace, we say this leads us to this anchor point, this place where we have assurance. And after Paul gives us that, he shows us that it's our faith that will grant us access to that place of knowing that we can rest in the security of Jesus Christ. We don't need to live our lives in pieces, but we can have the peace of God and know that God is on the throne and that he will make things right. But that's after all of that, where he's framed that for us. You have to have peace. Here it is. You have the ability to have peace. Here's your anchor point. You've arrived. You can be grounded. It is after all that that Paul gets into this bit about suffering. And for many of us, this is where the whole thing falls apart because they just can't reconcile the love of God with the hurts of humanity and why bad things happen. And I'm not going to be able to answer all of those questions uh, in this one sermon. But this is where this wholeness thing really clicked for me. This is where this comes into play. See, disciples of Jesus are people who are being made more and more and more like Jesus every single day. And the example that Jesus gave us with his life, of course we know it was not always easy, and really in his life I'd say it was never easy. But as a whole, that is what Jesus was. He was complete. And the, the wholeness that was Jesus, it was not shattered when it got hit. It just re remained whole. I think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, when he, he's encouraging us to live lives that are steadfast and immovable. So that it, oh, he says, always abound in the work of the Lord. So there's a job to be done, and there's going to be all sorts of things that are going to try to sway us from that job. So Paul says, you need to be immovable so that when that happens, right, we're solid in who we are in Christ. So we're not easily moved when we face opposition. We don't break easily. Uh, Hebrews 12 frames it like this, it speaks of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And how it's the things, the way that Hebrews 12 puts it is, it says the things that cannot be shaken are the things that will remain. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's why we exist. We exist to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth today. And this is why this matters. Even though God does meet us in our messes, and even though I would 
argue that God can still use you even when you're a mess. And he can still work through you even when you're a mess. Ultimately, God wants to do something in your life and in my life and in our community where we're whole. Where we aren't always a mess. Philippians talks about how we have the peace that passes all understanding. Uh, in that's what Paul says when he writes Philippians in Philippians 4, 7, he says there, that, there's the, that God gives us the peace that passes all understanding. And when the world falls apart all around us, our hearts and our minds are guarded and we're still able to remain. That's what he says there. He says, you, because you have peace, even when everything falls apart, you will remain. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Those who cannot be shaken will remain. You got to remember we're doing this study. We've been on it for a long time. At the very beginning of the study, when we were in the introduction, we were talking about the city of Rome. And we were talking about the world that Christians were really up against when they had this church in Rome. And the persecution they were up against. Trials were something that they were very, very used to. They were, used, they were accustomed to it. Life was hard for the church in Rome. So what Paul says is that when you experience trials, as hard as they may be, those trials produce in you endurance. It's the Greek word hupamame, which is also a very important word. It's one of the, it's, it can be translated as patience. It's one of the words we use for patience. But it means a lot more than just the ability to wait out difficult times. Um, you can cower patiently. You can have patience and you can kind of just sort of wait out whatever the storms of life are until they maybe pass you by, which is a lot of, that's what a lot of us tend to do. We're like, well, if I could just wait this out, this will smooth over, then I'll step back in. That's what a lot of us like to do. That's not what Paul's talking about here. There's a controversial um, interview that took place with the, the, the governor of Kentucky a few months ago when all of those storms were happening. It was here. We had the polar vortex. It was so cold. It was ridiculous. And, um, and it was, the, the interview was about how they kept canceling school every single day for many, many, many days straight. I know in Detroit, it was like negative 40 windshield. Or, uh, windshield. I don't remember exactly how. Uh, I think we lost over five, it was like five or six days of school we canceled. Because it was ridiculous. I think you like die if you're out there for like seven minutes or something. It was ridiculous. You couldn't do it, right? I, I don't, Kentucky's a bit further south, so hopefully it wasn't quite as cold there. I don't know. But they were canceling school too for their circumstances. And, uh, and please, before I say this, I understand sometimes you do need to think safety first, so please don't come up after me and be like, but what about the children? What about the kids? But, but the argument that he made, he's the governor and he's frustrated because they canceled school for like over a week straight. And, and, and he said, and I'm totally paraphrasing this, but he, he was frustrated about this. Uh, and he said something along the lines of this. When we tell people to bunker down at the first sign of a storm, we are sending a message that whenever life gets hard, the response should just be that we cower into a safe space. And we never move forward with anything. Now, obviously, a polar vortex, you got to think about, I understand that. But his point is actually what the Greek word is trying to say here, is what it's saying here. And this is what I got out of what he said. It is enduring through the trial that teaches you how to live in a world where storms do exist. Because in reality, life is hard. You will face storms. Or maybe you could say it like this. It's the courage during the hard times to keep going. To keep going. That is what produces character. 
And Paul uses the Greek, uh, the Greek word uh, dakame, which it, its character could also be translated as experience when he says endurance produces dakame. What dakame actually means is tried character or tested character. It's character that has been developed as it has been put to the test. It's someone who survives when their character is truly tested. And we, we don't all survive when our character gets tested. But just like with that visual we get about that harbor uh, to describe the word for access, we get a very interesting visual for dakame as well. The word dakame was actually used to describe metal that would be put in a fire, which is actually a fantastic image for what Paul is saying here. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 17.3. It says this, it says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. Crucible for silver, furnace for gold, Lord tests the heart. A crucible was a pot that held metals, that allowed people to put those metals under fire. So you would put silver in the crucible, and then you would put the whole thing into the fire, and the crucible would hold up in the heat, while even the metals inside of it would melt. And when the silver would come under such extreme heat, the dross, which is basically just that mass of impurities uh, that's mixed in with the silver, the dross would then separate from the silver so that the silversmith could then come. He could pull the whole thing out. He could scrape the dross off, and what was left was a purified piece of silver. The outcome was something that was made pure. Literally, the word pure is katharos. It literally just means it's purified by fire. You put it in the fire, you get off the bad, and then all you have left is the good. That's what, that's what it means to be pure. But what this proverb is saying, he says, but the Lord tests the heart. So we know, we understand these processes, and God's saying, this is how you know how the Lord tests our hearts. We find out an awful lot about what is in your heart based on what happens to you and how you respond when the fire gets turned up. The fire actually has, it it can bring out all of that potential uh, that's in the silver because what it does is it illuminates the bad so that you can eliminate the bad. And that's the image you get for character that is tried. And that character produces hope. Why? Why does that process have to produce, why do we have to go through that to have hope? I'll give you my theory. I feel like it's pretty grounded. But this is definitely one of those conversations that's been going on forever. God, why do we have to suffer? Why do we have to go through things that are so difficult? Why is this the process that you put us through in order to make us who you want us to be? But think about the people who are met with circumstances that just seem hopeless. We all have a threshold of how much we can handle before we break. And You know, we all have that breaking point, but it seems like there are certain people who just break right away. Like the first sign of resistance, they broke. And then others, it feels like they have this tolerance and they can just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and they're just still okay. It's like whatever comes at me, I'm going to be fine. Why is that? In the Old Testament, there's this ancient word, this word is rehav. It's a word that is used to describe space. And it's ground that we stand on. But the word actually literally means to grow wide or to enlarge. David uses this word in his song of deliverance uh, from Saul and his armies. Uh, When he says these words, he says, God, you have given me a wide place for my steps under me. And my feet don't slip. 
And the way that this word is often used in the Bible, it's used in such a way that it shows us that as you overcome things in your life, that ground begins to expand. So for David, by the time that he's actually writing these words, he, he, he found himself in a very difficult place. He's hiding from this army who wants to kill him, from King Saul who wants to kill him. But David had already watched God pull through on Goliath. He'd already watched God pull through in all these different instances that were way bigger than him. So he knows God can do it by that point. And so he's literally saying to God, he said, God, you provide the foundation for me. And I know this thing is getting wider and wider. I know I'm not going to slip. I might be in my worst, lowest moment, but I am not going to slip because you have been expanding my capacity to handle this the entire time. And I trust you even more because I've seen what you've done so many other times. We also get this word in Genesis when Isaac is trying to build all these wells and the Philistines, they keep coming and they keep plugging up the wells. So Isaac begins naming these wells, all these different names out of frustration that every time we plant, we just want water. We dig a well, the Philistines come and they just fill it in. So he gives them different names to describe the resistance that they, that they give. The first one he names Esek. Esek literally means contention. They dug a well. The Philistines contended with them. They came and they plugged up that well. The next well they named Sitna, which is, it means hostility. It comes from the same place as the word Satan comes from. It's the enemy. It was just this constant resistance. Isaac was trying to get water for his people. The enemy continued to resist them every step of the way. But finally... The third well, they named Rehoboth. And this is what he said when he named it this. He said, this is why we're calling it this. He says, uh, Isaac said, surely the Lord has made room for us here. Surely this is the place, God. Now, made room for us is that same word. It's the word Rahav. But it only came after Isaac persevered time and time and time again in what God called him to do, even though it was so strongly opposed. So for Isaac and Israel at that time, there was opposition, there was enmity, there was hostility, there was resistance, and then ultimately there was space. But what you don't see during the opposition and the hostility is that God is actually using those moments to prepare you for what will ultimately be the opportunity that he's called you to do. See, most of us, we view discipleship as reading books together. We should read books together. It's a really good thing. But sometimes life is the only teacher that can ever prepare you for what you'll face. And as important as information is, and as important as knowledge is, if we're going to reach the world for Jesus, we have got to expand our capacity for loving the undeserving. We've got to understand that it's not always going to be easy, but God is going to prepare us to do the mission that he's given for us. He, we have to be prepared to walk challenging roads. We have to, we have to be okay understanding sometimes life is going to be disappointing. Sometimes there's going to be failure. Sometimes there will be opposition, but we have to learn what it means to keep going by being forced to decide, I'm going to keep going. I'll use myself as an example. There's just a couple brief stories. So I grew up in a very large church, an awesome church. Uh, we moved to California. Ended up working for a very large church, an awesome church. We were the creative 
uh, directors for a record label they had there. Just everything was just going really well. Uh, before we left, before we before we left, we left like a little suburban house, and and uh, uh, before we went to California, like three bed, two bath garage, you know that whole thing. We left all that, went to L.A., worked in another big church. Then from there, we actually went to plant a church in New York City, and we spent four years working as hard as we possibly could at a church plant with the expectation that the same thing that happened in Los Angeles, the same thing that we had in Los Angeles, and the same thing that we had uh, back home was just going to happen in New York City. Because we had only ever known bigness from every church that we were ever a part of. We weren't around for that time when churches were planted. We weren't around when they were watering it and being faithful and facing opposition and having people come and people go and people get mad and people all that stuff. And every single day where you're like, man, how is this even going to take place? And we weren't there for the growing. We just saw it. And so we went to New York kind of thinking, oh, that's just going to happen again. And where amazing things did happen during that time... It did not explode the way that we expected that it would in the time frame we were there. I still believe it will. I still believe, I know it's growing right now. They just opened a second campus. I'm super excited about it. But we built like an army to do this thing. Like we had, in my view, one of the best teaching pastors in the entire world that went over there. We We had a worship pastor who still to this day travels all around the world almost every week with the best and biggest and most famous Christian worship leaders there are. Don and I were doing all of the creative, doing things that it seemed like not a lot of other people were doing. We loved the community relentlessly and served them every single day, but the walls that we faced were not scalable in our own strength. And growth did not look the way that we envisioned it when we gave up our lives in L.A. to go out there. But seeing how hard it actually is to build a church in a hard area... Before we came here, was very important for our foundation here. Experiencing a taste of that difficulty made the challenges a lot less explosive when we faced them here. Because by the time we got to Detroit, we no longer lived under this unrealistic expectation that everything is just automatically a success, or everything is just automatically big. Or take, for example, even in our personal lives, in our journey. I've told you guys this before. When we, when we lived in New York for a little while, we lived in Rockaway Beach. Uh, we never had anything crazy happen in our lives at that point. And all of a sudden, one day, there was a big old hurricane thing or a superstorm, Sandy. And it displaced us for over a month. We, had, we couldn't live in our house because of all the water and all the electrical and stuff that happened. There was no power, no heat. We had to move out. And we had to bounce around from apartment to apartment to people who were very gracious to us, but we felt like a huge inconvenience to all these people. And we had to do that for over a month. And I don't think I could have taken more than about a month at that time. But then when we, a year and a half later, left that place and we moved to Brooklyn, we thought, okay, we're going to move to Brooklyn. This will be easier. Because of the size of our family and the, and the income ratios, because we didn't really qualify for things there, we actually, we'd already left our apartment in Rockaway by the time we still hadn't found a place in Brooklyn. And we applied for 40 to 50 apartments that all turned down our application. And we had t- over two months of not having anywhere to live, and we had to stay with different people. We stayed with Pastor Brad, we stayed with Don's sister, we bounced around from house to house. Again, inconveniencing people is the way that we felt. Felt like this entire time as we're searching for our apartment. And so it was two months before, after moving out before we moved into the new one. And the whole time, 
as hard as that was, we were a little bit more prepared for it because of the first time, and something was just expanding in us for the next time. When we moved to Detroit, we moved here without anywhere to live. We, we, had, a, we had a job. We knew why we were coming. It actually took us six months before we found the house that we now have. And before we, for a little while, we rented a month-to-month spot before that. When we first got here, we actually, the first few we, couple weeks we were here, we actually stayed in an Airbnb a couple blocks from here that was $11 a night. Now that sounds awesome, but there's a reason it was $11 a night. And we're so grateful that we had some place to go, but we shared this kind of dungy, weird apartment with this random guy who lived in it. We didn't even know. We thought we were like renting the apartment. We actually were renting like one little room in the apartment, all five of us at the time packed in that room. And then we shared the kitchen, we shared the bathroom, we shared the living room with some random dude who just lived there. And he didn't, he didn't even, he just rented from the Airbnb. So like they rented one thing to him and one thing to us. We're like, all right, here we go. Um, and I won't get into all the details of that unit, but it wasn't particularly what we were looking for in life. It really could only go uphill from there. But when, when we finally got into our house, it ended up being about six months of like, temporary spots. We had to tear out the entire thing and begin to rebuild it. Tear out every single wall. This was our house. We tore out every single wall and we began to rebuild it. So we lived in one bedroom of the house. Not a one-bedroom house. One bedroom in a house. And then we opened up room and room and a little bit more and a little bit more. And this has gone on for several years. It's still going on. It's a lot, lot better than it was. But it's still going on. Now, if I had moved straight from my suburban Lansing, Michigan, three-bedroom, two-bath house with a two-car garage straight to this, I would have been out of here in like a week. There is no possible way that we would have been able to like, like we feel called, but like, man, I don't know. That would, I, you understand how God has to prepare the ground that you're going to walk on. And for us, trials were an unexpected teacher, but they were the best teacher. And they laid a foundation that would prepare us for the work that we needed to do in this community that God's called us to to reach. And even though it's been very hard, and it continues to be hard, we don't live like there's no hope. That's why we keep going. We keep going because we do have hope. We have hope that God will use small acts of love done by a few faithful people to do something that actually changes people's lives for eternity. And we've been seeing him do it. And we we know that he will do it again and again and again as long as we continue to allow ourselves to be that vessel and as long as we allow ourselves to let let that capacity continue to grow. Guys, think about it. I know this is a long explanation, but think about it. If you've never seen God bring you out of a circumstance that you know you could never get yourself out of, then when one day the sky finally does fall down on you, are you going to have hope that God will bring you out? Are you even familiar with what it looks like to see hope work in a broken situation? There's a reason that so many people lose faith when their world falls apart. Because they're they're just so used to things working the way they're supposed to work. And so they're left empty Because they fill their tanks with this illusion of a perfect world where nothing bad ever happens 
And that returned void, and when it returned void, they gave up on the entire thing because they had no clue how to respond to something not going the way that they had planned. Of course, you're going to feel whole if nothing ever goes wrong. Good job. Really, really good job. But God wants you to have wholeness even when it feels like your world is falling apart. But if you were sold that lie that life is just going to be a butterfly garden, it's all going to be roses, it's all going to be awesome, if you just have enough faith, you'll never face pain, you'll never face opposition, you'll never experience loss, you'll never get sick, then the moment that one of those things happens, your entire world will crumble. But if you've been through the crucible, and if you've seen what God can do, then when he puts you through that fire and then he, like that silversmith, comes and he wipes off the dross, separates the impurities from that which is pure, and you begin to form your life around the way that God has moved in your life, what that teaches you is that there's hope. There's hope that God will show up in this circumstance just like he did in the last one. Because I saw him show up in the last one and the one before that and the last five before that. And each time it felt a little more impossible and it just meant that God had to show up in a more miraculous way. That's hope. That's why I believe that out of tried character comes hope. Because when you've been tried and you see God show up, you begin to learn God always shows up. He always shows up. And because of the gospel, because God met you right where you are, you can live your life today with wholeness even when it seems like the world is falling apart around you. Do not worry when you hit the walls. The walls were created for you to get over them. That wall exists to be overcome. That wall exists to show you that you can, in fact, get over it. And when you can't do it, God himself will do it for you. Listen, the reason this is so important and why I believe that Paul inserted this really kind of strange bit about suffering right here, right after this mic drop moment about justification, is because we must not view justification as our lives are going to be easy now or our lives are not going to experience any pain anymore. No, it's more like this. Our lives have a kingdom purpose now. Our lives have an eternal purpose now. Our lives have a mission now. We are redeemed for a purpose. And it's much bigger than the purpose of just getting into heaven. And it's a much bigger purpose than just a life of comfort. Most people define discipleship as teaching people to do what they do. But if you have a bunch of people who never face anything, never feel anything, then what exactly are you reproducing anyway? It's an illusion that nobody else can live up to. I believe that discipleship is more about teaching people how to live in a world that needs them that needs them to be who they're supposed to be, how to bring Jesus to the parts of our community that are in pieces. How to live our lives in such a way that in Christ, we're whole. Wholeness does not come overnight for most people because life's a journey. And sometimes life's a crucible. But the end result is a tried character. And a tried character produces hope. 
and we're built into the people that God has created us to be. And we begin, as that happens, we begin to view the world differently. We begin to look at it through a lens of hope, through the perspective that says, if God can do all this for me, then he can do it for anybody. He can do it for the whole world. He truly is the hope and the light of the world. And then this last line is so important. It says, and hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't disappoint. It will not leave you empty. It's the only thing that won't leave you empty. And Paul gives us the reason why in the second half of of verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And this, in the gospel according to Romans, is our first introduction to the Holy Spirit. And it comes in the form of this image of life-giving water actually going into you. See, in John 7, we have Jesus, and he's talking about how out of us comes living water. And John himself says there, he says, actually, Jesus is referring directly to the Holy Spirit when he's talking about this living water. So this is, but it flows out of us. So we get here this like infilling, this filling of something that will then be later poured out of us. It's like this constant flow, it's poured in, it's poured out, it's coming, it's going, but it's staying, but it's just watering. The Holy Spirit is here to be our strength when we're weak, to fill us when we're empty. You know, there are certain areas of our lives that if we're honest, they're not ever going to be whole without the help of the Holy Spirit, which we can't fill it. There's, there's voids that we cannot fill without God. It's going to take the Holy Spirit pouring the love of God into that area of your life. And only because God is who he is can we ever be who we are. And in our weakness, when we can't muster up any more hope in our own strength, hope will not disappoint. It will not return void. It just, it doesn't leave you empty because the Holy Spirit will keep filling you and filling you and filling you. One of the things that I just love so much about God is the fact that he gave us this commission, this incredible commission, go into all the world and make disciples. Turn people into followers of me. Turn people into whatever it takes to make them the whole person that they need to be so they can lead the rest of the world to me. Let's reproduce this so that they can reproduce it again and again and again. But before he leaves them with that commission and he disappears, what does he say? He says, I am with you even to the end of the age. I'm always with you. I'm with you when you're suffering and I'm with you when you're smiling. I'm with you when you understand what God has done for you and I'm with you when you don't understand God at all. You know, when you get this, if you can grasp what God has done, not just through Jesus, but also through the Holy Spirit, you realize that as broken and dark and lonely as some days may feel, You're not alone. You can throw discipleship into the ocean if you think it can be done without the Holy Spirit. It can't. It's just, it's all it is is information at that point. The mission is just too big. God is moving in a way that only God himself can move. And if we're going to be the vessel of that, we need to let God himself move in that way through us. So as we begin to prepare to take communion today, And we remember the body and the blood of Christ. I want to encourage you this morning to take a few minutes to invite the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do in your life this morning. 
I believe that God truly can change a whole lot by a few faithful people. I really, really believe that. But only if they let the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting for them. That's why he's here. Let's lean on him this morning. Let's lean on Jesus this morning. Let's lean on the Spirit this morning. Invite him into all the areas of your life. Invite him into your suffering. Invite him into your pain. Invite him into the progress that you've been making. Invite him into your victories. Invite him into the mundane areas of your life. The simple daily existence. Come in, Holy Spirit. Invite him into your relationships. Invite him into your quiet times, in your devotions, into your marriage, into the classroom. Invite him in as you disciple one another and begin to find wholeness in every single area of your life. And just see what kind of a follower of Jesus that makes you. You will be unstoppable. We will be unstoppable.